millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 90, The Roman Army in 800 AD. What? Episode 90? Yeah, don't worry, you haven't missed any. This should be episode 88. I'll explain it at the end of the show. Last time I took you on a fictional journey along the eastern frontier to give you a better understanding of what military life was like. Today, I want to flesh out some details and answer your questions. This will be a quick survey of what has changed and what hasn't. Even though this has been the case for about 170 years now, I think it's worth reiterating that by 800 AD, it was expected that the Vasilefs would personally lead the army. From the start of our podcast to the death of Maurice in 602, emperors had felt comfortable sleeping in the palace while generals dealt with war. But the shattering events of the 7th century led Heraclius to conclude that he needed to be on the front line, to be seen as the legitimate ruler. Since then, most of his successors had felt the same. The precious legitimacy, which 6th century emperors had enjoyed, was gone and Heraclius' descendants each suffered regular rebellions against their rule. These civil wars reached a peak with the seven emperors who each seized the throne in the build-up to the siege of 717. By 800, it was considered vital to lead the armies in person and secure victory. The sight of the emperor returning with spoils and slaves reassured everyone that God was still invested in the fate of Romania, and more practically, it allowed the emperor to build a good relationship with the soldiers who guarded him while he slept. By keeping them happy, he would be able to face down the rebels and usurpers who inevitably appeared. This tension was captured in the relationship between Irene and her son Constantine VI. If he had secured a military triumph, then she might have been eased out of power, but his struggle to do so kept the door open for her to push him aside. Constantine V, by contrast, had a particularly good understanding of the situation. He used the caliphate's internal troubles to win some easier victories over the Bulgars and cultivate the image of a great general. He also reformed the army, to increase its effectiveness and loyalty. He did this by creating the Tachmata. As you'll recall, Constantine stripped the provinces of their best soldiers to create an elite force 
who would live in and around the capital. They were divided into cavalry and infantry units who would each have separate barracks. Some would live in Thrace, some in the city, others in Anatolia. He wanted the best soldiers in the empire to protect him, but he didn't want them to be able to conspire with one another. By dividing them physically, he hoped that each unit would see him as their real commander, rather than any particular general. The creation of the Tachmata was the most important military development of the 8th century. Since Heraclius had stationed them in Anatolia, the themes had done their job of preventing Constantinople from falling. But the four main armies represented four independent power centres, and that was four too many as far as the emperors were concerned. So Constantine weakened the theme armies to strengthen central authority. The results of this reorganisation are complicated. The threat of vast civil wars was reduced. The number of usurpers and the frequency of conflict won't change dramatically, but as we'll see when the narrative resumes, the effort required to unite a more fragmented army made it harder to sustain such campaigns. No repeat of the Seven Emperor scenario is coming, and therefore the very existence of the Empire will not be under threat. In terms of warfare, the Tachmata do represent an improvement in the offensive capabilities of the Empire. As fully professional troops, they won't need to concern themselves with farming or administration, as some of their colleagues in the provinces do. And by being stationed in the most peaceful part of the empire, they will rarely need to concern themselves with police action or lookout duties either. And by virtue of their better pay and provisions, they will have the best armour and weaponry available. In the centuries to come, the Tachmata will be the core of any army which marches out to reconquer imperial territory. Their skill and discipline will be key to the empire's future success. However, the growing strength of the Tachmata means a corresponding loss of strength in the theme armies. Any talented or ambitious soldiers would now want to join the elite. Not only did they have better pay, conditions and higher social status, but their physical proximity to the capital meant they would enjoy the extracurricular payments that went with securing certain positions, including bribes of potential usurping emperors. Those left to serve in the provinces would inevitably be less good and less professional. And more importantly long term, it made life in the theme armies less appealing to new recruits. As the centuries go by, we will see this problem in practice. In a way, though, the reduction in quality of the themes was merely a reflection of the strategic reality the Empire faced – The Arab raids weren't going to stop, but only a relatively small force was needed to prevent them from getting any ideas about conquest. If they actually crossed the Anatolian plateau, then the Tachmata would be there to meet them. As a result, the men of eastern Anatolia would become increasingly tough and self-sufficient, as well as perhaps less enamoured of the government in Constantinople. 
sentiments I put into the mouth of Alexius, the cavalry officer, in the previous episode. Finally, I should point out that the creation of the Tachmata does begin a trend for emperors promoting troops who are specifically loyal to them. For example, when guards' units rebelled against Irene's religious policies, she invited men from the Themes to replace them. These men formed a new unit within the capital's elite who were loyal to the Empress personally. As the years go on, emperors will often do this and create whole new units because of their political loyalty rather than their merit. The logical end of this process is the hiring of foreign mercenaries who naturally depend entirely on the sitting emperor for their livelihood. As you can imagine, this has all sorts of potentially negative consequences. Out in the provinces, then, are the theme armies. You can see the current lineup on the maps page at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. Over the next couple of centuries, they will be further divided into smaller units defending ever smaller blocks of territory. These divisions will come with further administrative and financial reforms that we will get to in due course. At the moment, the situation is roughly how I described it in our fantasy narrative. A theme's headquarters would be the preserve of a small corps of professional cavalrymen paid by a regular wage. Then a second group of cavalry and infantry made up of semi-professional soldiers. These were men from military families who had farms and other businesses where they lived. They were happy for the infrequent pay and legal benefits which military life provided. For example, land owned by soldiers was protected by the state. It couldn't be easily annexed by a greedy neighbour, and it was first to be compensated after an enemy raid, and was exempt from providing food and lodgings to other troops. Soldiers could also appeal to their strategos to sit in judgment on legal cases they might get involved in. So for anyone with larger states living in Anatolia, some form of militarization was a necessity. Eventually, a raid would reach your land. Uh, were you going to run or hide, or were you going to defend it? By sending your sons to serve in the army, you gave yourself a good chance of early warning and potential defence. Finally, the third group uh, is made up of you, as in the you from last week's episode, the part-time infantryman who lives on a small farm but feels those benefits of military life are worth the danger and effort of manning the watchposts and storehouses that make up the defences of the empire. Even before the creation of the Tachmata, it seems that the number of full-time soldiers in each theme had been in decline. Once Egypt, Palestine and Syria were lost, it was impossible for the treasury to pay for four full-time field armies, even after their pay had been cut. Wages continued to decline, and as I just hinted, the frequency of payment varied. We're not sure how much cash reached the lowly theme infantrymen. In theory, the army received a regular wage, and in theory, a bonus every few years, and on the accession of a new emperor. But we have little hard evidence about what went on in practice. That it seems it was becoming harder to recruit theme soldiers suggests 
that pay was poor and irregular. Men were usually paid to go on offensive campaigns, though. These strategos in charge would bring a war chest with him, and presumably this was essential if you didn't want to wake up one morning and find that the disgruntled infantry had all gone home. With eastern Anatolia a permanent war zone, filled with hiding places and difficult terrain, incidents of desertion and fraud were high. In our narrative, I mentioned that you had inherited your army commission from your father. In the next century, registration in the roles of the themes will become hereditary, an attempt to arrest the decline in recruitment. But in 800, enough volunteers still existed for this not to be in force everywhere. Many soldiers were descendants of Heraclius's field armies. They had settled down in their new locations, married local women, and bought a farm. Their sons knew less about being professional soldiers than they did, and their grandsons even less. Hence the complete lack of training and experience that you had in our story. But since these men were rarely needed to take part in a pitched battle, it was considered easier to simply train them on the job. With clear instructions, men such as these could lay ambushes and attack a tired enemy. As I touched on briefly during the fictional narrative, the names of units seems to have changed slightly from the last time we checked in during the episode on the Strategicon. So, divisions, brigades, and regiments are Tourme, Thrugi, and Vantha. Vantha being the banda I mentioned in the fictional narrative. So each theme was made up of several Torma, each with its own Tormak, uh, commander, uh, which should be pronounced Tormachis. He would be in charge at a fortified base, uh, while your banda, your vantha, your regiment, was associated with your local area. So your local regiment of between 50 and 400 men would be made up of people you might know personally. The Thrugos, the brigade, was the unit you would go into battle with and would be made up of several Vantha. I also mentioned the Dekarch in the story and he would be in command of the smallest subunit of just 10 men. The fact that your local Vanthon could range from 50 to 400 men, gives you a sense of the fluid life of the theme armies. Their size and strength depended on many factors, including the health of the local economy, whether the the harvests had been good, uh, if the Arabs had raided recently, and just the competence of your local commanders. Uh, It was their responsibility to keep an eye on their men and update the roles as needed. If times were tough... Men might just not show up when they were called for. They would stay working on their farms and hide if someone came looking for them. These variations make it very hard to estimate the total size of the Roman army. This is a much debated topic amongst historians. In 837 AD, the Byzantines made a raid into the Caliphate. Amongst those they captured was an official called Al-Jami. 
Eight years later, he was released in an exchange of prisoners, and he returned to Syria and wrote a book about the Romans, which sadly does not survive. However, he was quoted in several works, which we do have, and he claims that the Byzantines had over 80,000 soldiers serving in Anatolia, with even more in the West. He seems to have got his hands on an official document because he lists the numbers resident in each theme, including 15,000 in the Anatolikon and 10,000 in the Armeniakon. Though very large, some historians have accepted these numbers as accurate. They point to the militarization of Byzantine society and concede that perhaps these numbers reflect paper strength rather than the reality on the ground at any one moment. However, more convincing arguments to my ear come from historians like Mark Witto, who argue that the Roman army was far, far smaller than that in 800. Witto points out that 10th century England is generally considered a sophisticated state and yet could never raise 10,000 men for a campaign. Similarly, the German army of Otto I won certain decisive battles with only 4,000 men. For the Byzantines to have 80,000 in the field, and therefore by extension the Arabs must have had double or triple that, would be highly improbable. Quite what records Al-Jami got his hands on, we don't know. But if they were the theoretical army roles, then they were probably very out of date. Witto suggests a more likely number for the Byzantine army would be about 30,000. And that includes the Western troops and assumes a large number of inexperienced foot soldiers. As we move on in the narrative, we do occasionally get accurate numbers for campaign forces, and these are always far smaller than an 80,000-strong military would likely field. There are also the field manuals, which I used to compile last week's narrative. They describe a Roman force of 3,000 cavalry as being, quotes, large. One of them even refers to 6,000 as representing all of the cavalry in Anatolia. So the average Arab raid in a far-flung corner of the empire probably meant a couple of thousand men being chased by a few hundred Byzantines. This shouldn't surprise us too much. The empire in 800 is an impoverished place. Only the west coast of Anatolia and a few islands are undisturbed and able to pay their taxes every year. Everywhere else is affected by war and all the destabilizing consequences that it brings. Back in 600, the whole of the east was defended by about 75,000 troops. In 800, a force of, say, 18,000 sounds like a plausible reduction. These are, of course, educated guesses, and there is no consensus. I should point out that back in episode 75, I told you that the six regiments of the Tachmata contained 4,000 men each, giving the elite force a total strength of 24,000. This is the number reported in texts like Al-Jami's, but is clearly not likely to have been the case. So what about weapons and tactics? How had they changed? 
The major development for the Roman army was, of course, what I dramatised last week, the tactics of guerrilla warfare against the relentless tide of Arab raids. This became a way of life for the people living in the Armeniacon and Anatolicon. I tried to pack in all the details you'd need to imagine what life was like there, but I'll add a few more. Back in episode 37 on the Strategicon, I described the armour of infantry and cavalry in 600 AD. Not a huge amount has changed since then, though what the Strategicon describes is the armour and equipment of well-paid and well-looked-after soldiers. In our story, I described the rather paltry leather and felt which the infantry were clad in. This was all they could afford, and since they weren't planning to fight pitched battles, they hoped that it was all that they needed. Those in the Tachmata could afford lamella and metal, but for those out on the front line, humbler options would have to do. Another thing I mentioned in the story was that Alexius carried a sabre. It was a weapon which cavalrymen found lighter and easier to wield than a sword. The Byzantines would have borrowed it from the Arabs and the steppe peoples. Sadly, that's about the only innovation in weaponry I can reliably report, and even that has very vague dating related to it. As you know, we're in the least well-documented period of Byzantine history, and since Turkey has little appetite for Byzantine archaeology, much of Anatolia is underexplored. We may know more one day. Maybe I should point out, though, that military technology did not progress in a straight line. Our modern concept of progress, research and development leading to better things, is just that. Modern. The Romans adapted. They did what they did to win, not because it was necessarily better than what came before. The classic image of the Roman legions with short sword and big shield served them well against the German tribes for centuries. But when the Germans began to gather into larger and larger confederations, the Romans adopted their weapons. They'd found that the bigger sword and smaller circular shield made them more effective against German opponents. Just as infantry gave way to cavalry when all their opponents began making better use of their horses. In our period, the Arabs outnumbered the Byzantines so thoroughly that the logical solution was to hide to avoid combat at all costs and to attack only when the enemy were distracted and tired. There was little point in rigorously training men to shoot arrows on horseback or making them into mechanical killing machines. It was far more effective to train them to scout, track and ambush. Several of you asked questions about the difference between fighting the Arabs and fighting the Bulgars, which is a good question because obviously the Romans did take a more direct approach when fighting the Bulgars. However, I'm going to deal with them in another episode. Uh, There's a particular incident coming up early in the next century where I think we'll be able to look at the Bulgars in more detail. As for the Arabs, we have almost no description of battles during this period. Theophanes and Nicephorus are both writing chronicles rather than histories, as in, they might write, 798 AD, Arab forces under Commander X raid Province Y, the Emperor sends forces under Commander A to defend the area. That's about it. The Arab historians equally are uninterested in the details and more concerned with the names of commanders and recounting how successful they were. When the opportunity comes to give you more detail, believe me, I will. 
What I can say is that cavalry are the focus of any evidence we do have, so presumably infantry were asked to simply hold the line. Uh, When faced with opposition infantry, they might get the chance to hack away, but generally their job was to repel cavalry charges if they could. They were not expected to win battles on their own. My best guess would be that the cavalry largely tried to outmuscle their opposition rather than try anything fancy on the rare occasions that the Romans and the Arabs stood toe-to-toe. If the Romans were forced into making a pitched battle, it was usually in western Anatolia where they had superior or at least equal numbers. Uh, So whether they were facing the Arabs through choice or feeling forced into it, I think they would try to scare the Arabs off. Um, The Arabs would always be better natural cavalrymen. Uh, Horses were their culture, their lifestyle, not just their occupation, as was the case for Roman troops. It was better then to try and intimidate them and force them to retreat or raid elsewhere rather than try to be clever and lure them into a trap like, say, Belisarius did at the Battle of Dara. I know it's fun discussing clever battle tactics, but the Byzantines were really not in a position to lose. They had to keep things simple to stay in the game. Since I'm insisting that border warfare is what it's all about, let's just get a little more information from the Arab side of things, specifically Cilicia, the small fertile region on the eastern side of the Taurus Mountains. This was where the majority of Arab raids were born. It had long been a battleground between the two sides, but in the build-up to the siege of 717, the Arabs had battered their way through the mountains to make sure that Cilicia would become a strong part of the caliphate and the natural launching point for attacks into the house of war. The three main towns were Mopsuestia, Adana, and Tarsus. By 800 each was a commercial centre with walls and mosques to accommodate their populations. The inhabitants were an interesting mixture. The Arabs had uprooted a number of troublesome peoples and sent them to Cilicia to help balance the native population with non-Romans. These included Persians, Slavs, Christian Arabs, and most interestingly, the Zut, a gypsy people. Most interestingly, because they were keepers of water buffalo. They were living in southern Iraq when they got the call to be brought to the border. The constant warfare had left Cilicia both depopulated and full of chaos. Preying on the situation were mountain lions, who hid in the thickets growing around the sacked cities, and they would jump out and attack children and livestock. The Zut and their water buffalo would gobble up the thicket, and push the lions back up into the Taurus. Resident in the cities were also a large population of young Arab men. Many were there as border troops, while others had come to go on the annual raids. Some out of piety, some for adventure, most to make money from rustling or slavery. Amongst them were also the wealthy and the ambitious, Like Roman senators of old, military service was essential for your CV. In some of the great Arab histories, the leader of the annual raid is listed alongside the leader of the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. 
like consulships and praetorships, these were the distinctions that would look good back in Baghdad when trying to climb the ladder. Men who volunteered for the raids would be given money by their home province to pay for their expenses while in Cilicia. The towns had special housing prepared for them, and doubtless it was a place buzzing with energy as spring approached. Beyond Cilicia was Syria, and there lay Al-Awasim, a small new province created by Harun al-Rashid to provide for frontier defence. Harun will continue raiding the empire when our narrative resumes, but he recognised that the future would likely feature a permanent border with Byzantium. You already know about the network of fortified frontier cities like Melitene, Kamacha, Adata and Germanicia. These cities guarded the routes into the caliphate, and now Harun was grouping them into their own semi-province so that the resources of the local populations could feed the garrison stationed there. He also slightly increased the pay of these soldiers, uh, recognising their special status. Thus set up, the two sides played out one of the longest-running and least-documented conflicts in human history. We do have a few details of an Arab raid in 777, but it's written by a Syrian Christian, and maybe as fictional as my own effort. The author claims that amongst the Arabs on that raid were Khazars, Persians, and Turks. Their army began hitting the countryside before they suffered an attack of dysentery and lost some of their pack animals too. They pressed on, though, and rebuilt a fort, on their way to besieging the Roman garrison at Camacha. The Arab force requisitioned carts from the local Armenian population and brought wood to construct siege engines. The Byzantines did the same. In the attack which follows, the defenders are successful in driving off the Arabs. The Arabs attempt to fill a ditch which surrounds the fort, but the Romans drop logs on them. The invading force send out men to pillage and gather supplies, but some get lost and others are ambushed by themed troops. Meanwhile, the Muslim commander also sends out for merchants who arrive to establish a market to sell food to the troops who are preparing to bed in for the winter. Eventually, however, they abandon their efforts and leave. They burn the market to prevent it falling into Byzantine hands and refuse to pay the workers they'd hired to help them. Whether this happened or not, I think a couple of details are particularly interesting. One is the cooperation of the native population. Whether willing or coerced, the local Armenian Christians provided supplies, merchants and workmen. As I mentioned in my own narrative, local Romans often compromised with the invaders to save themselves trouble, and perhaps to make a profit. The fact that the Arabs built their own siege engines on site is a reminder of why it's so difficult for either side to make great advances in the mountains. To drag siege equipment up from Syria was impractical. But by taking time to build those engines, they gave the garrison time to prepare better defences, and often in these situations, the advantage is with the defenders. While we're discussing raids, listener AF asks a great question. 
Were these annual raids brutal and violent? Did the raiders kill, rape and enslave everyone, or did they simply steal what was valuable and leave? Of course, we don't know. Common sense suggests a couple of things, though. The raiders were on a timetable with specific goals. They were usually led by professional soldiers who knew that the Byzantines would be in the area looking to counterattack. So a wild, uncontrolled frenzy was probably rare. The more experienced raiders knew that treating captives well would make them easier to move back across the border. There was no sense in injuring them unnecessarily, as that would decrease their value. And of course, some of these men were devout Muslims who took seriously the injunctions to righteous behaviour. However, they were on a raid into the house of war. Much propaganda had dehumanised non-Muslims and sanctioned their removal to be slaves. So human rights were unlikely to be a high priority amongst the raiders. And I don't think I need to elaborate on what can happen when male soldiers capture female civilians, particularly when the latter are destined to become slaves. So the raids may not have been savage slaughter, but they were potentially just as unpleasant for captives. A certain amount of civility will grow over the centuries. For example, noble prisoners might be treated better because of the potential ransom money. And as we just saw, armies might ask for merchants or labourers to assist them and treat them well in order to get what they need. In fact, do you remember Harun's raid of 782, the one where he captured Stavrakios and forced Irene to pay to get him back? Well, part of the negotiated retreat was that the Empress would open markets to the soldiers on their way home. When you think about it, it's a bizarre scenario, as the huge Arab army heads back over the land that it just raided, Roman merchants and tradesmen were being asked to come out of hiding and begin serving them lunch. Yet that's what happened. It was actually a sensible move on the part of both Harun and Irene. The Arabs needed to eat. This way they wouldn't have to raid any more Roman villages and the locals would be paid for their troubles. Though I imagine the negotiation of price was something of a one-way street. Moments like this were steps on a journey towards the Arabs and Romans recognising one another as permanent neighbours, rather than inveterate enemies in a struggle to the death. Eventually, a mosque will be built in Constantinople to provide for prisoners of war. This attitude of conciliation will strike the Crusaders as odd, but of course is merely an extension of Roman attitudes to the Persians and other respected enemies that it was grudgingly forced to share the world stage with. That's it for today. There will be more military information coming your way when the narrative resumes, and we're very nearly there. Just a couple of episodes to go. I also just want to say thank you to everyone who gets in touch with me, and particularly those who buy the sale episodes. If you've got any problem with your subscription, I will respond immediately. However, other emails have begun to pile up. I will reply to every message sent, but please bear with me and forgive the delay. Now then, why is this episode 90 and not 88? Two reasons. 
Recently, I did a part B on the Leo and Charlemagne episode and the interview with Anthony Caldellis. I didn't number them as separate episodes, and I now have something special planned for episode 100, and I realized that these episodes were messing that up. So I've corrected the numbering in iTunes and on the website, but I haven't touched the files, so they will still say the wrong number, uh, as will I, on the recording. Hopefully we can all forget that this embarrassing incident ever happened and move on with our lives. Your feed should be fine and uh, experience uh, no problems. I'm going to sit back now and wait for the annoying emails that will come my way over the next few decades as people reach episode 82 and start pointing out my error. Oh well, it's no more than I deserve. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 